Well, good morning, everybody. Praise God. Welcome to Gospel Saving Church. I'm so glad you are here. Welcome to all you that are coming online and welcome to all you who are in my home and listening and seeking truth today. Praise be to God. Uh, for As you know, this is Gospel Saving Church. I'm Pastor Ed Spagnoli. And this is a, one of God's true churches of these last days. We haven't fallen into apostasy and I refuse to let us. And so this is our weekly broadcast of truth from God's word. So if you guys want to join me in a word of prayer, let's get into our sermon. Let's get into our teaching. God's got a good one for us today. Uh, if you join me, please. And let's ask the Lord to bless our hearts in this message in my mouth and make us receptive. And We'll settle into the mojo of listening to what God has to say and get our hearts right before the Lord. Lord, we, we thank you, Lord God, for this message. We thank you, Lord God, for... Uh, you're working in all the lives, Lord God, of those that are listening to this message, Lord. We, we know that you're working in our lives because we're here and we're listening. Lord, we, I don't know where each one of us is in our walks with you, Lord, or even if we're walking with you at all. Uh, Lord, many people think that they are walking with you, but they're really not. And Jesus speaks about that in Matthew chapter 7, Lord, that, that many that think that they you are their Lord, Lord, they're deceived and they're wrong. So, Lord, I don't know where the hearts of the people are that are listening to this message. And I know that people all over the world, Lord God, will listen to this message, Lord God, because this is the ministry that you've given Gospel Saving Church right now. But I, but I, and I do know this, Lord. I do know this. I do know, Lord God, that you can help change the heart, Lord God, if, if someone is really seeking you and they really want to know and they're really seeking truth. So, Lord, I pray that you would Help the hearts of those that are listening to this message, Lord, be receptive to the things that are said today. And I pray, dear God, that you would make all of our hearts just right and, and put an atmosphere in our hearts, Lord God, of salvation today. Put an atmosphere of, of change, Lord, in our hearts today for those of us that are yours, Lord, that we would want to change, Lord. If there's an area of our understanding about you that we're not right on, Lord, then help us change it. Lord, we know, Lord, that it, it's very difficult once we believe something or once we're firm in something we believe, Lord, to change. Lord, repentance is not an easy thing. But, Lord, I pray you'd put an atmosphere, Lord God, in this message of all this change and all this salvation that I speak about now that I ask you for now. So that, Lord, all those that are listening to this message, Lord, would either be strengthened in you, number one. Number two, we'd maybe change if we have a misunderstanding about something in your word. Or number three, Lord, that we have a change of heart towards what we think we are, if we think we're yours, but we're really not, Lord, and that we would take and examine ourselves and look at ourselves and see if we're really yours, Lord, and then make an honest determination if we are. And if we're not, Lord, then I pray that that change, Lord, would come, that you would change that person and they would turn to you. Lord, but we ask all these things, and we know, Lord God, you are the bringer of all these things. And Lord, you can make all these things happen. So we love you, and we praise you, and we thank you. And we ask all these things in Jesus Christ's mighty name. Amen. So if you guys want to open your Bibles, we're going to be in Acts chapter 18 today. We're going to be in verses 5 through 11. The title of our message today, From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. From now on. I will go to the Gentiles, said by the Apostle Paul in verse 6 of our section of Scripture today. Anyway, Acts 18, verses 5 through 11, we always read them. So if you want to join with me and read along, or if you just want to listen along as I read, so be it. 
The Bible says this, starting in verse 5. When Silas and Timothy had come from Macedonia, Paul was compelled by the Spirit and testified to the Jews that Jesus is the Christ. But when they opposed him and blasphemed, he shook his garments and said to them, Your blood be upon your own heads. I am clean. From now on I will go to the Gentiles. And he departed from there and entered the house of a certain man named Justice, one who worshipped God, whose house was next door to the synagogue. Then Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed on the Lord with all his household, and many of the Corinthians, hearing, believed and were baptized. Now the Lord spoke to Paul in a night vision, Do not be afraid, but speak, and do not keep silent. For I am with you, and no one will attack you to hurt you. For I have many people in the city. And he continued there a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. Starting out, did you catch that first part of verse 5, right? When Silas and Timothy had come from Macedonia. There we see that Paul's ministry partners finally catch up with him in Corinth. Remember, they were supposed to meet up with him in Athens, uh, but they got left behind. He didn't wait for him. He just moved on. He went on to Corinth. Even though he was waiting for him, he he didn't wait. They they weren't there in time, and he just got an itch from God or was impatient or however you want to see it, and he moved on to Corinth. Praise God that they caught him at all. He was a mover and shaker. When Jesus Christ told him to do something or whether or not he did, he just wanted to serve God with all his heart and do what God told him to do, and that was preach the gospel and plant churches. The other bit of good news there in that verse is that when they do finally reach him, he was inspired by God's Holy Spirit to move for Christ and obey the Holy Spirit's leading. The rest of that very first verse, verse 5, Paul was compelled by the Spirit. This is after they got to him. And he testified to the Jews that Jesus is the Christ. I, I really see him. It doesn't say he went into a synagogue. It didn't say he went to any certain uh, Areopagus place because I don't know that there was one in Corinth. But, but I see him here, you know, like almost like what we see today. Like if you go downtown sometimes, you'll see people standing on boxes and they'll have megaphones. The Lord Jesus is here. He's waiting for you. Come to Jesus. He is the Christ. I have seen him on the road to Damascus. I saw him and, and there were 500 other disciples that saw him all at one time. And this couldn't have been a fluke. And the disciples have been persecuted and being dying, you know, dying for this Jesus the Christ. And I see him just, just kind of proclaiming this, booming this message from some central high trafficked part of the town or something like if you go down to downtown dallas as so many people do i just this is the vision i get of paul doing this he was compelled by the spirit and he testified to the jews that jesus is the christ here we don't see him proving jesus as the christ we see him testifying this jesus is the lord he is the christ he is the messiah i just love street preaching i just love this kind of preaching that i see paul doing here So Silas and Timothy come, and and Paul gets inspired by the Holy Spirit to preach. But the first thing I want to point out is this. It doesn't seem like God's Holy Spirit even gave Paul's travel gospel travel companions any time to rest from their tri- from their travels and in case you didn't know Corinth was roughly 320 miles from Berea which would have been in case you didn't know in case you wanted to know about 10 days riding a horse as it was walking 
This is how far they were away. This wasn't like, you know, we have a car now and we jump in the car and this is a six hour trip and then we're here in one day and oh, hey, here we are, Paul. They travel for 10 days. This means that they had to catch lodging while they were traveling. This means that they had to catch food while they were traveling. They had to stop and let the horses rest. This was 10 days, travel during the day, sleep at night. This is a rough journey. And, you know, and, and, and are you as comfortable when you are traveling as when you're in your own home and you're resting and you're just going to work and back from your own home? Heavens no. This kind of travel makes people wore out. Car travel, uh, long trips, you know, on trains and stuff that people, you're out hours, you're not at home, you're not in your own bed. It makes people tired. So Timothy and Silas would have been really wore out from this 10-day journey. This is a rough journey. This, you know, again, there's no modern conveniences like we know today. But even though Timothy and Silas would have been thoroughly and truly worn out from their journey, God's plans for them was for Paul, you know, remember they were with him, to get into some heavy testifying or preaching that Jesus was indeed the Christ, the Messiah of God. Now, I've been serving God for quite a while now, almost 18 years in the ministry, as God called me to serve him just, you know, just days, weeks after I came to know the Lord. And I could tell you this about serving God and serving God while I've been wore out. Uh, there are times that I've been wore out when God says, hey, take a rest, get some pizza, get, get with the brethren, get some, some soft drinks and chill out and watch a Christian movie and just sit back and just rest. You, you're you, you know, time to get refreshed. But there are times that I, you know, am wore out and have been terribly, terribly wore out. Like, you know, can't take another step kind of wore out. And God strikes a spur in my back like he did with Timothy and Silas here in Acts 18. Uh, as he said to me, don't you think about taking it easy, boy. Get on your feet. You better get going. Even though that may seem a little harsh, it's not. Uh, no matter how tired or wore out I ever was, when I felt God, I heard God's voice, and no matter how wore out I was, and he said, hey, keep going, my son, keep going, keep going. As I took the steps that were necessary for obedience, because, you know, God works with us, and as and so as I obeyed and as I went, even though I was just like, can't even take another step, wore out, God would flood me with this supernatural energy, this power that he would give me that although I may start out exhausted, <laughs> as I started and as I walked, it's like, as, it's like the lepers. They asked for healing. As they went, they were healed. As I would go, God would just heal me of my tired and I would be like full of energy and I'd be ready to go for him. And no doubt here in my mind that as Timothy and Silas were also soldiers for Jesus Christ, he also did the same for them. God is good all the time, ladies and gentlemen, even though he may ask us sometimes to walk through the valley of the shadow of death, or even though he may ask us sometimes to keep going when we don't think we can even take another step. If you truly love him, serve him. These things will be found in the service unto God. So, God calls Paul to preach, testify to the Jews that Jesus Christ was indeed the promised Messiah. How did the Corinthian Jews respond? Look at the first part of verse 6. But when they opposed him and blasphemed. That would be, understand that the way that's written, that would be they opposed Paul and Timothy and Silas, their message. And what that, you can't blaspheme a person. Uh, blasphemy is against God. And so this is coming from, of course, Luke is writing this. And Luke, of course, knows that they blasphemed what? The Lord of glory. 
Jesus Christ. Ouch. Now, they wouldn't have seen it as blasphemy because, of course, they didn't see Jesus being the Christ. They ignored, they rejected that. But, of course, this is from how Timothy and Paul and Silas were viewing it, how Luke saw it. They were actually blaspheming Jesus Christ. These Jews he preaches to aren't having anything to do with Paul or Jesus Christ, period, the end. Just as so many of Paul's Jewish audiences have been since he's been preaching Jesus Christ after he met him on the road to Damascus. He's been re rejected by the majority of those of the Jewish descent from Syria, Cyprus, Asia, Asia Minor, Macedonia, even including the largest cities in Athens. By this time now, he's probably really used to rejection, right? Wouldn't you say? Hey, man, Paul, he was rejected everywhere. He turned left, turned right. He was, he was probably just used to it. Well, well, that could be a conclusion you'd come to, but from my personal experience, as I've been ministering for the Lord, I, I have been rejected literally this is not an understatement. I've been rejected literally thousands of times because of Christ and preaching Him. And I can tell you this, from, from my perspective now, and I think me and Paul had the same kind of hearts. I still have his kind of heart. I can tell you this, every single rejection to this very day of somebody rejecting me for Jesus Christ still stings as much as it did when I first came to Christ and I first preached Christ and people rejected Christ back then. And not only does it hurt me, because usually, uh, what, they, they strike the messenger. Usually that's the first one they strike. That you preach Jesus Christ, they strike the messenger, meaning their, their words are against you. And then, of course, you know, they, they, they turn to you and against Christ, just like they did to Paul here, where they were against him and they blasphemed the Lord of glory. But not only does it hurt me because they're nasty to me because of Jesus Christ, it, it, it hurts my self-esteem. Now, you may be saying out there, oh, you know what, that's, that's flesh, you know, that's, that's your flesh, and you're right, I'm wrong. You, you sh we should not care. In fact, Jesus said, when they come against you for me, rejoice. But of course, that's, that's hard to do. Because, you know, the, the, your flesh and your mind, they go, man, I want people to like me. I want to be loved by people. I want to be liked by people. I, I don't want people to scorn me or hate me. You know, so I know it's, it's all something that we all have to deny ourselves for when we go out. If we go out and preach the gospel, we know we're going to be rejected. Part of the reason why many people don't want to go preaching the gospel is because they're concerned that they get hurt by people's offensive actions toward them and their offensive words towards them. It's something that we have to overcome. But for me, that's the, only the first reason that I have to step through. It also hurts and stings me, and I'm sure it hurt Paul and stung him, because I, we know, Paul knew as well as I know, that if people reject Jesus Christ and they don't repent, they're going to spend the rest of their eternity burning in hell. And that hurts me as well as uh, God's heart, as well as Paul's heart, because God wants everybody to be saved. Second Peter 3 nines. So because of this heart the Apostle Paul had for Christ and for people coming to Jesus Christ, I'm sure that their rejection hurt him just as bad or as worse as, as it hurts me as, you know, the people and the Jews have rejected me or rejected Jesus Christ. I think he especially loved the Jews because of what he says in Romans 9, 1 through 4, where he was especially hurt by their rejection of Jesus Christ. He, he says this, I, I tell you the truth in Christ, and I'm not lying, my conscience also bearing witness to, in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart for I could wish, so, so there he tells you, it hurt him. It hurt him when people reject. How do we know that's the context? Verse 3, for I could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ. That, that means I wish that I were in hell 
That this is what I was, I wish that I was going to hell. Why? For my brethren, my countrymen, according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom are the promises. And so these are not the, the what, what so many think. Is the, these are not the, the people who are supposed to be Christians, but they're not Christians yet. When he says these are my countrymen, according to the flesh, these are Jews by lineage, by heritage, by birth. Jewish descent, a man or a woman or a child that's been born of a Jewish family that, that come back from the line of Abraham, the physical line of Abraham. That is some major love. I don't know about you, but I don't know. It, it, it's almost impossible to do to really have the heart to say, God, save them even if it means don't let me go to heaven. Oh, those words just... just Ouch! And that's the kind of love that Paul had for his Jewish brethren according to the flesh, the literal, you know, birth lineage flesh of the Jews. And it's, wow, his love. So I know that their rejection hurt him, and it hurt him deeply. How does he respond to their hurtful rejection of him and their hurtful rejection of their denial and their blasphemy of Jesus Christ. Look at the end of verse 6 and the whole of verse 7 because it kind of like takes a twist here and this is kind of where the, the main, a main thrust of our message is going to be because that's kind of like where the title came from. So look at the end of verse 6 and verse 7. He shook his garments and said to them, your blood be upon your own heads. I am clean. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. Verse 7. And he departed from there and entered the house of a certain man named Justice, one who worshipped God, whose house was next door to the synagogue. So here's what he does. We've got to break down what he does because it's all kind of scriptural. Not kind of, it is scriptural, excuse me. So he shakes his clothes out as per the sign to them that he was basically done dealing with them. He probably shook his garments out to mimic, kind of like, you know, put together what Jews do when they're kind of done with people as well as what Jesus Christ told his disciples to do when somebody rejects them in Matthew chapter 10. When, when somebody rejects you, knock the dust off your shoes and move on, right? Next, the second thing he does, he tells them, your blood be upon your own head. Where, is this, where does this come from? Why, did, why would he say this? Well, this comes from a, a very ancient idea that God gave to Ezekiel in chapter uh, 33, where he gave him this analogy, this idea of the watchman on the wall. He said, Ezekiel, I'm making you a watchman on the wall. And, and then God described it to him like this. You put a watchman on the wall. If there's an enemy coming and the watchman is supposed to look out for the enemy and, you know, in a like manner, think of today, Christians, right? Paul here, what he's saying to these guys, the enemy is the devil. Basically, Paul said, hey, the enemy's coming. You didn't look. I'm wiping my hands. I'm done because God told Ezekiel, if the watchman on the wall sees the enemy coming to attack the city, if the watchman then goes and rings the bell, hey, people, the enemy's coming, close the gates, be safe, get out of here, don't, don't seal up your houses, be, you know, or flee, or get away, or shut your door, and, and they don't do anything upon your call for, hey, be safe, as these Jews weren't doing anything here to turn to Christ and make themselves safe from the enemy of the devil, then God said, as long as you sound the gong and you let them know, 
you've done your job. If they die because the enemy comes and they were stupid enough to not shut their doors or not flee, then you know what? You're innocent. I, you're innocent. I let you go. And, and you know what? Them, they didn't listen. Their blood's on their own heads. The, the reason they died, their blood's on their own heads, which is what Paul did here. But if you gang, you know, bang the gong and then they take your warning, as Paul was, you know, warning them here of the devil and of hell and of, you know, because of the saving Christ and everything, and they do take your heed, then of course the blood's on nobody's head. Everybody's safe. And so here, the second thing he says here, he's he's going taking them back all the way to Ezekiel chapter 33, and he's going, hey. I've warned you of the wrath of God to come and of the devil who wants to destroy your soul. But hey, I've warned you. Here's the salvation. You didn't want to listen. If you die in your sins, my blood, I'm clean. I'm clean of you dying in your sins. I've warned you. That's the second thing he does. Then lastly, and believe it or not, he gives them the strongest language he could ever give them. He tells them, uh, that's it, I'm done with you now. I'm going to Gentiles from now on and not you Jews anymore. Why, why would this have been the strongest language? Well, because the traditional Jewish man hated the Gentiles. They were just disgusting. They were, they were dogs to the Jews and, and not in a good way as Jesus used it. They were dogs. They were literal worthless creatures in their sights. Then not only does he tell them, hey, I'm done with you. I'm going to the Gentiles. Then what he does is it's just a beautiful sign of I'm not kidding around. What I said is true. He goes right into the fellow's house named Justice. And that would have been he would have been a Greek man, uh, maybe a Roman Greek man. Titus Justice would have probably been his real Jewish or his real Gentile name, who one who worshipped God, the scripture told us. So that means that he was a Gentile Christian. He didn't say he worshipped the gods. Uh, he said he who worshipped God, meaning Jehovah, Jesus Christ. And look at this, whose house was right next to the synagogue. I love how scripture points that out, because why did scripture point that out? Paul told him, I'm done with you. I'm going to go to the Gentiles. Then, just in classic prophet of Old Testament character, because this is what this is what God would have the old prophets do in the Old Testament. God would God would give the people a sign by making the prophet do whatever it is that God just told him he was going to do to them for not obeying him. They, you know, they would. Well, I remember one prophet. I think it was either Isaiah or Jeremiah. He said, you know, the the, the children are going to be leaving. They're the, the the Chaldeans are going to come, and 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 the people are going to be carrying their stuff away to Babylon. And so then God. God said, now you, Jeremiah, Isaiah, here, go get, go in your house and get it ready and pack your bag. And then, you know what? Go out the wall and walk out the wall. And when the people say, well, what are you doing? He would say, oh, hey, this is what's going to happen to you because you won't listen to God. God's going to make you leave. Well, here, Paul, in traditional Jewish, like total prophet fashion, what does he, what does he do? He goes right into a Gentile's house where it was right next to the synagogue. So do you think they saw it? Absolutely. It was right next to the synagogue. He could have picked the Gentile's house, a Gentile believer in Christ's house that was across the city. You know, Corinth wasn't a small city. It wasn't a, a population of 500. No, but he picks the Jewish or the, or the Gentile Christian's house that's right next to the synagogue whom the Jews would have known. That's not a Jew. And he goes and he walks right into a Gentile's house before them all to say, hey, I told you that I'm done with you because you reject Jesus Christ and you blaspheme him. Now I'm going to the Gentiles. And so he did. Wow. 
So why did Paul react so harshly and unkind towards these Jews here in Corinth if he loved them enough to, to, to wish himself accursed or to lose his eternal life for their salvation? Well, number one, remember, Paul also loved Jesus Christ. And he's our, if you're a Christian, he's your Lord. And we have to do what Christ said. Matthew chapter 10, Jesus said, when they reject you, Knock the dust off your feet and move on. No matter how much he loved them, he still had to obey Jesus Christ. Uh, but number two, there was another reason that I believe. Uh, actually, there's probably three reasons. No, number two, Matthew 7, 6, Jesus says, Don't give what is holy to the dogs. He's preaching Christ. They're in rejection. You keep throwing what's holy to the dogs. He says, nor cast your pearls before swine. At least they trample them under their feet and turn and tear you into pieces. People get angry when you keep coming to them and they don't want to hear something. And why are you going to keep going to somebody when they set their heart against what you're saying? Why are you going to force them to believe what you believe? They're done. At least from you, you got to leave them alone. And that, that leads right into like number three, the reason number three. When you continue to push any belief on someone that doesn't want to hear it, whether it be Jesus Christ or your ideas about this or your ideas about whatever it be, and here the context is Christ. So I'll use him as the example, which is true. If you continue to push Christ on people and they don't want to hear him and so they reject him, but you keep pushing, what does that do? Well, that just pushes them farther away. That just makes them more angry with what you're saying. That just makes them more obstinate because now it becomes a, he's trying to get me to do this. I'm, no, no, I'm not going to do it. And so he, then you, you get into a mindset of, I'm going to do this just because he wants me to do it. And so, of course, God wants everyone to be saved and have eternal life with Christ and him forever in heaven. Uh, so if someone wants to reject Jesus Christ, God's way of salvation, then God, because he gives us that free will to do that, to reject or accept, he must respect their decision to not be his friend. Uh, that, that, that tears me up, but I love God so much more because he does give us our own free will uh, to choose him or to reject him. And he doesn't force us to be his friend. I mean, that, that's, that's one of the awesome things about God is that he, he may make certain things happen in certain people's lives, you know, because he has a purpose for and a will for the, for the world and the earth and his purposes, but he will not force you to turn to him. He won't force you to open the ark, which is your heart, and let him in. Now, before we move on, along the same point, there's a pretty big point here that needs to be made and aside here as to what Paul says to these Jews, verse 6, that I've kind of personally even, not sure if you've been there too, I've actually personally misunderstood this idea in Scripture. So God was giving me some light as I did the message, and I hope it will give you light, some, some, some more light too. So in verse 6, he tells them this, From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. Now, taking another scripture out of Galatians chapter 2, I believe it is. Let me look here. I got it on my notes. Galatians chapter 2, I believe it is, 2.8. Anyway, you, you get this impression that Paul is saying, I will not go to any more Jews ever. I'm not going to preach to any more Jews at all ever, and I'm just going to go to the Gentiles. Uh, Paul says to these specific Jews here in Corinth, not all Jews. This is what God has taught me, and I'll show you why he, he showed me I was wrong here. 
because I thought he meant all. But Paul says here to these specific Jews, not in Corinth, not towards all Jews, that he would ever come across with the intent that he, he meant just them, not all. Uh, how do I know and how do we know that Paul here didn't say to all Jews, I'm, I'm not going to preach to anybody Jewish ever again because you know what? You guys have rejected and they've been rejecting me for all these years. And I'm, not, I'm done. I'm going to just go to the Gentiles. Well, we know that this is the truth, that he didn't, wasn't saying this and that he was just speaking to them here in Corinth because of his actions. Literally, right after he says what he does here to the Jews in Corinth. In the very same chapter, Acts 18, just scroll your eyes down if you're there, to verse 19, Paul finally leaves Corinth after being there a a year and a half. Uh, We'll get to that in a minute. That's another big point. And he goes on to Ephesus. While there, verse 19 says this, he himself entered the synagogue. Well, who's in the synagogue? Well, I mean, there were Gentile converts too, but mostly who's in the synagogue as Jews. So he entered the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. Now, you know, here, just keep going, go down there. So we're still in, go to the next chapter, chapter 19. So the very next chapter, just shortly after 1819, go to 198, Acts 198, the very next chapter, he's still just moving through, moving on, preaching the gospel. And he went into the synagogue and spoke boldly for three months. That would be every Sabbath. He went ever for, for three months straight reasoning and persuading concerning the things of the kingdom of God. Again, synagogue, that's where the Jews were. Acts 22, verse 1, just a few chapters from Acts 19. After he had gone into a Jewish temple to announce the expiration of the days of his purification, he had done like a fast or some kind of Jewish ritual thing. The Jews got angry with him because they saw he was with the Gentiles, so they take him and they're about to kill him, but the Romans step in, they save him. Now, while saving them, they're taking him away because the Jews wanted to stone him to death. Paul, still loving the Jews, this heart of, I wish that I were accursed, right? Yet, th- so that they could be saved. Paul, loving the Jews, asked the Roman centurion or asked the Roman general, he says, Can I speak? to them. And what does he do? He preaches to them a sermon, goes all the way back to like Abraham and talks about Jesus Christ and he preaches to them. So it's just obvious by Paul's actions after he casts these Jews in Corinth away, you know, hey, your blood's on your own head. I've warned you, you're done. That he's not saying that he's done with all Jews everywhere. If he meant that he was not going to preach to any more Jews anymore ever, then he would have not have gone to other Jews later in his ministry to reach them for Jesus Christ. Now, maybe I have some Bible students out there and you're thinking, wait a minute, didn't Paul say in that Galatians 2 chapter that that's exactly what happened, that that's what he did? I think you're maybe misrep, you know, maybe taking that out of context, these other scriptures. Well, that's always what I thought. But listen to how he words Galatians 2.8. And when you listen to how he words it, instead of just having this preconceived notion in your mind that this is what Paul did. You know, he just cast all Jews off all the time, everywhere. Listen to what he says in Galatians 2.8, because God showed me how he worded it. His People's words are important, and how they lay out their words are important. And I just wrote a book speaking about Oasis, and, and it, it talks about how the wording of the sections go that talk about once saved, always saved, being false. But listen to Galatians 2.8, how he words it. 
For he who worked effectively in Peter for the apostleship to the circumcised also worked effectively in me towards the Gentiles. Nowhere there did he even allude to the fact that he didn't preach to Jews at all. What he said, the way he worded it, for he, God, who worked effectively, effectively in Peter for the circumcised, which would be the Jews, also worked effectively effectively in me toward the Gentiles. The way he worded what he said was not to say he only went to the Gentiles while Peter just went to the Jews, which again, I've been misunderstood about for many years. He worded it to say that God gave him a really effective, powerful ministry amongst the Gentiles. And Peter also had a very powerful, effective ministry to the Jews. And that is true. We don't know anything really much about Peter's message once Paul kind of stepped in. God kind of used Paul, except for this section of Scripture, Galatians 2.8. We, we just know mostly what Paul did. And if you look at the ministry of Paul... Where did God give him the strongest amount of power to do his preaching? <laughs> Who was it to? Who accepted his message the most out of all the people that Paul went to? Was it the Jews or was it the Gentiles? Well, <laughs> just look at, just read the book of Acts. There were some Jews that turned to Christ because of Paul's preaching, but most of his audiences that he went to that were affected by what he said, even though he went to the synagogues, you know, Jews first, right? Most of the Jews rejected him and blasphemed Christ, while most of the Gentiles accepted what he said. And so we know by, by what he said in Galatians 2.8, what Peter did to the Jews then, must, God must have been working through Peter to help Jews get saved. Not that there were a whole lot in Peter's ministry either, as we still have Jews today that are rejecting of Jesus Christ, but we know that there are some Messianic Jews even still today. So Peter got a strong ministry from God to minister to the Jews, and Paul got a strong ministry to minister to Gentiles. It wasn't that God said, no, Paul, you're not going to minister to any Jews at all, because, again, Paul's work right after he says this to these specific Jews in Corinth, he goes right then there, just chapters later, the very same chapter and the next chapter and just a few chapters later, and he preaches to Jews some more. Anyway, I hope I made that huge aside very clear. Uh, even again, I personally had always had very, for many, very many years, not by anybody teaching me, but what I was just reading in the scripture, I had misunderstood what Paul said there in Acts 18 and Galatians 2 with him and Peter's ministry. So I'm not sure if that helped you clear up the misunderstanding. Maybe you always knew that. Praise God. You know, we're always getting light if we're seeking the Lord as I always am. So um, moving on. So away from the aside. So Paul with his companions, preaches to these Jews here in Corinth, and they reject him, remember, and they blaspheme Christ. Paul, in obedience to Christ, shakes the dust off his, the dust off his clothes or feet, tells them their blood's on their own heads, Ezekiel 33. He goes right into the Gentiles, typical, like, typical prophet, Jewish prophet, in the sight of everyone, does, you know, to them what he says he's going to do, what God's doing, hey, I'm moving on. And then he goes right on in the middle of it, right in their faces, what happens to the ministry that God gives Paul when he obeys Jesus Christ's teaching and departs from those in the city that reject him and blaspheme Christ? Look at verse 8. Then Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord with all his household, and many of the Corinthians hearing believed and were baptized. So right there we even see that Paul's ministry still had some effect on the Jews. But remember, 
Paul said that God gave me an effective ministry to the Gentiles, which means that it was really powerful to the Gentiles. Not to say that Paul's ministry didn't have any effect on the Jews. We see it right there. One pretty impressive Jew believes from what Paul does. He's the ruler of the synagogue. Pretty important man here. Right? Him and his whole family, which is pretty impressive. But you know, that's just one family. But what does, it show, what does it say next? It says that also many Corinthians, many, the word many is there. Again, many is more than one family. Many is many, right? Many Corinthians, that would be Greek Gentile Corinthians. Well, they get saved too. Then they do a public display of, a display of work uh, to show that they're, you know, to show the world that they've decided to follow Christ, right? They get baptized. Even this, this, uh, this Jewish family who, who right in the side of everyone, which if you really, if you really love Christ, you're going to do what Christ says after you're saved, not, not, you're going to do works to be saved, but once you do get saved, you're going to do godly works because that you're a new person. And so even the Jews, this family to get saved, they get baptized in front of all the, the whole town, basically, to show, hey, we're followers of Jesus Christ. Well, praise God, because what happened here is the church grew. The Corinthian church Paul was building while he was there, well, it just grew some more. It's always a wonderful thing when the church grows. When it grows with real converts, that is. There are many today's churches filled with false converts. And you can tell by their lives and their works. They live lives of evil, doing evil things, and they work works of evil, yet they profess Jesus as the Christ. But in their lives, they practice all kinds of sinful ways with no repentance toward their sinful ways of life. It's a sad world we live in today, especially in America. Especially in America. Pushing on just a few more verses, just covering them quickly, getting through this one little section. God has me come back to that idea, though, at the end of the message. So because of all this receptiveness towards the gospel in Jesus Christ, what does God tell Paul, the Apostle Paul, to do next? Look at verses 9 and 10. Now the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision by night. Do not be afraid, but speak and do not keep silent. Paul gets a vision that's pretty cool. In that vision, God says, Preach! Preach Jesus, brother, or preach Jesus, my son, and keep going. Verse 10, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to hurt you. That's awesome. Stay, preach, and no one's going to hurt you. I, I do want to point out one more thing here as we keep moving forward. I do want you to think, hey, by what we're going to read next week, you may think that what God told here was, uh, or God, what God told Paul here was a, was, was false because God says here, don't worry, stay here, preach, and no one's going to hurt you. The way he says it, for I am with you and no one will attack you to hurt you. Again, next week we're going to read right when we start off, and I'm going to cover this pretty in depth next week, but God, people actually come against Paul and they attack him. But the key there, as you'll see next week, is they don't hurt him. Right? God didn't tell him that he wouldn't be attacked at all. God didn't tell him that nobody would come against him in the city at all. God told him, stay and preach, and I'll make sure that nobody hurts you. And so keep that in point. What God says in his word is not a lie. The Bible, not a lie. It doesn't lie. God doesn't lie, okay? So just, just keep, that, keep that in mind. God, God doesn't tell any born-again Christian, oh, you're going to have this wonderful life, and there's nobody going to persecute you, and there's nobody going to do this, nobody going to do that. Uh, sadly, sadly, this being persecuted, being scorned, being, you know, being dumped on, people hating you, and, oh, that's, this is par for the course. 
if you're just a real Christian. So um, then the last bit of good news that God has for Paul there as to why he should stay, the very last part of verse 10 there says this. This is another reason why I want you to stay. Here's the vision. I'm going to stay, preach, preach. For I have many people in this city. Right? God, of course, tells Paul in his word that he knows the hearts of man. And here he tells Paul that he knows of many in this city whose hearts are tender toward the message of Christ. The message of Christ being the Messiah. Uh, that means that they'd be ready for new life in Christ. Also, too, God knows those whom are what Paul calls in Romans 5.11, the remnant according to the election of grace. This is, of course, not the Calvinistic view where God predestines some and the rest are just bound for hell. God just says here in Romans 5.11 that there's an election according to grace. God has predestined some so that he can always keep a, a, a remnant of those whom believe so that, guess what? People can still believe. Because if God just gave it all over to the devil and, he, and the devil, and he just said, hey, well, devil, take whoever and, you know, give it all to him, then, of course, the devil would have every single heart everywhere. So God, out of his love, makes an, an election according to his grace so that people can still see an example of Christ living on this earth so that, you know, we can, people, people, the lost can still come to Christ all the way to the very end. But either way you slice it, God knew all these good things that he had for Paul in the city and that he had set up a huge harvest for those who were going to be saved in Corinth and he wanted Paul to be there to reap the harvest. So because of God's news to Paul and all the fruit that he, God Almighty, would bear for him and his kingdom here in Corinth, as I mentioned earlier, just briefly, Paul stays in the city preaching Jesus Christ the longest he stayed in any city thus far. Look at our last verse today, verse 11. And he continued there a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. Look at it said teaching. I, I think Paul was more of a teacher than a preacher. I said last week of myself, I, I think I'm more of a teacher than a preacher, but sometimes I have to preach. And here, uh, God makes Paul stay there a whole year and a half. This is, again, the longest that Paul has stayed anywhere preaching the gospel ever since he's been ministering for Jesus Christ. That, that's awesome. God knew the harvest he had. Paul was there to reap the harvest. I, I just love to, the way Paul taught God's word. I love to teach God's word. It's, it's one of the things that I love to do the most. If only more today wanted to hear and be taught the word of God, and they wanted to obey the teachings that they actually heard. As I said earlier, that God would bring me back now to the church of today's day and age. Unlike the church in Paul's day, the church of today is full of false converts and apostasy, sadly. People who've been responsible for spreading the word of God have done a terrible job of actually getting people to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Many people have a belief, a head knowledge of the salvation of Jesus Christ and of who God is and of who Jesus Christ is. But the Bible speaks about a, a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, a saving knowledge of the Savior, not just a head knowledge of the Savior. And all that most do when they preach to so-called people that are zealous for God is they what they do, 
how they try to get people saved is they try to get people to pray this prayer of salvation. And, 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 and they think that this prayer of salvation is some magical prayer that helps people get saved. Well, sadly, in 18 years of ministering to people, speaking to people about Jesus Christ, I've met a humongous number of people that have told me that they were saved because they prayed a prayer of salvation. But yet then... As I met them, when I asked them some of the very most basic things about what it means to be saved and about who Jesus Christ is and what Jesus Christ said, even though they'll tell me they've been saved for 20 years, their answers are sad and their answers are not biblical. Their answers that they give are not according to the Word of God. Their answers that they give are according to what they think. Well, what we think is not according, to, unless it lines up with the Word of God, it's wrong. Uh, people, I've been asked, who is Jesus Christ? Or how do you know you're saved? Or what does it mean to be saved? And I get answers like, Jesus loves me. Well, guess what? Jesus loves everybody. But just because the Bible says, just because Jesus Christ loves everybody, doesn't make everybody saved. So that doesn't mean that you're saved because Jesus loves you. Or, or I had this one. Well, how do you know you said, well, I don't know. I'm just saved. I, I don't know. I've never even read the Bible. Well, how, how can you say you, you know Jesus Christ personally and you're saved by him, but you have no interest in the words that God wrote about him? How is that possible? That's just anti-Bible. God says that we're renewed by the renewing of our mind or spirit in the Word, right? You can't, can't, can't be renewed in the Word if you're not reading the Word. Here's another one. Well, I believe in Him. I, I believe in Jesus. Well, the Bible says that even the demons believe, and they tremble. And we know, unfortunately, sadly, the demons aren't saved. So that doesn't make anybody saved because they have a head belief in him. It's a certain type of belief that the Bible says you have to have in Christ. Oh, well, here's another one. Well, I believe I'm saved because I've asked Jesus into my heart. Can you, can you show me anywhere in the scripture that it says, Jesus, just ask me into your heart and then you'll be saved. That, that doesn't exist. That doesn't exist. Uh, here's another one. Jesus is my Lord. Yeah, I'm saved because Jesus is my Lord. Well, anything that's just a profession that comes off your lips, unless it's lived out, unless your life proclaims it, and the, the ways of your life proclaim it, it means nothing. Most of those types of answers came from people that were anywhere from the ages of 20s to 50s, and most of them either told me that they were born a Christian or they had been Christians for 10 to 30 years. I've been born a Christian. Nobody's born a Christian. Nobody. How about this one? I was even told by one gal, I was told by one gal once that she thought she was a Christian because her grandmother was a Baptist deacon or a Baptist preacher. That's why she thought she was saved, because her grandmother served the Baptist church. I mean, come on. Now, the scary thing to me, people, listen, my listeners, about this, of all those answers that all people have given me as to why they were saved, again, as I said above, the Bible, the standard of truth, says that none of them are correct. None, none of those answers are correct. Just because somebody makes a profession that Jesus is their Lord, or just because somebody says, I believe in Jesus, or somebody, well, I've accepted him in my heart, none of those answers are biblical. Now, the Bible says that you have to be born again to be truly saved. 
born again. And when I've asked about what it means, people, I've asked people what it means to be born again, the weird or wrong answers just keep com- coming in. I, well, I was water baptized. Well, the Bible says that people are saved, just like today. Many of the Corinthians believed, that would be the heart belief, Paul references in, in the, the epistle of Romans, he speaks about a heart belief in Christ, not, not just a mental belief. And as they believed, which meant they got saved, then they were baptized. If baptism meant that that would save them, then the baptism would have come first. And then they would have known, hey, well, I've been baptized, so I've been saved. Well, see, water baptism doesn't save anybody. It's just an outward profession of faith that you give to, some, to the world to say, hey, I've decided to follow Christ. And what does it mean to be born again? And the same, other, the same other answers. Well, I believe in Jesus. Well, I was born a Christian. Well, Jesus is my Lord. But these answers are crazy and they're wrong according to God's word, which, which is the standard of truth, both for this life and how to get to the next. Why does this scare me when you give me wrong biblical answers to questions that are basic? What does it mean to be saved? How do you become born again and you don't know what the Bible says is because think of this analogy. Think of this analogy. If you told me or I told you I was a football player, and in fact, according to likening the analogy to the one of many people, well, I was born a Christian or they've been said they've been saved for 30 years. I'm a professional football player. I play for such and such a professional team and I've been a professional for, you know, 15 years playing football, right? So I told you that. You'd be like, well, that's pretty impressive. But then let's say you asked me to describe how the game worked. Well, can you tell me a little bit about football then? And, oh, what position are you, you know, and and what do you do? And, you know, how? but I couldn't tell you the basics of how football was played. And, well, how do you play football? Well, I, well, I don't know. I'm, I'm, there's a ball and it's, it, you kick it and you throw it and then I, I'm a football player. Well, but what, what position are you? I, well, I don't know. I just, I'm a football player. Believe me. Because I tell you, I'm a professional football player. Would you believe that I was a real football player? I would tell you that I was. But then when you'd ask me some basic things about the sport, how would you, and I could not answer you, what would you think? You would not think that I was a football player. You'd think I was crazy. You'd think this guy, he's lying, he's pulling my chain. This guy's nuts, he's lying, he, he's just boasting. He's, this guy's a fat old man, he ain't gonna play no football. He can't even tell me what football is. Oh, can you can you show me your, your contract to, for the game? Or, or can you, what, have you ever, you know, gotten a championship or gotten a ring? Or, or can you show me pictures? Or do you have a football card? You know, because football players get football cards. Well, I don't, man, I don't have any of that. I'm just telling you right now, I'm a football player. Well, I'm telling you again, if I can't produce any real evidence or any real even evidential knowledge of me actually being a football player, uh, again, a professional football player for 15 years, then you would have to say with honesty that you think I was crazy and that I was lying to you. Well, the same 
parallel goes for me, goes for the Bible. If you tell me that you've been a Christian for 15, 10, 15, 20, 30 years, or, or I was born a Christian and you're 25 years old, that means that you believe that you were a born saved person from, for 25 years. Now, if you claim to be something or to know something from birth or for 10 to 30 years, whatever you claim to be or know of, if you've been knowing it or been doing it for that long, then you ought to know almost everything there is to know about what you claim to be, <laughs> right? I mean, common sense. If I've been a real professional football player for 15 years, I could give you the ins and outs of practically every position on the field. I could tell you what games I played in, what stadiums I played in, what people I played with. I could show you evidence that I was, some contracts. I could give you some football cards because I'd have one of those. I'd have proof to back it up. If you say that you're a Christian and you can't answer the most simplest questions of Christianity and you've been saved for decades or more, 5, 10, 15, 20 years, then the nicest and simplest way to think of it is that you're really not truly a Christian, a, a real born-again Christian, that is. You're really not the saved person that you think that you are. Please understand, my listener, if you think that you're saved and born again Christian and you think that you were saved and born again because you were water baptized, or because Jesus loves you, or you don't even know how you're saved. You just you're saved, you know, but you've never read the Bible, so you don't know nothing about it. But you know, you still think that you are. Or, well, I believe in Him, or well, I asked Him into my heart, or Jesus is my Lord, and yet the Bible doesn't say that any of those ways are ways in which people are saved. And the Bible says that you are not truly in God's kingdom. You're not truly a child of God but you've been deceived into thinking that you are. Jesus spoke of deception in the last days and in the time of, of that Christianity would exist. And he says this in Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 through 23. He says this, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. It, number one there, notice, they called him Lord, Lord. Who calls Jesus Lord except for those who believe themselves to truly be saved? But they came to him. This is at their death. They were facing the, the judgment seat of Christ. Or not everyone says to me, Lord, Lord, enter the kingdom of heaven. It's a, it's, a, it's a kingdom of heaven idea. They're standing in the judgment seat of Christ in heaven. And they're going, Lord, Lord, oh, Lord Jesus. Well, only someone that thinks that they are saved is going to call Jesus Lord. So they thought they were saved their whole lives until they're standing in front of the judgment seat of Christ. Yet Jesus says, only those who do the will of my Father in heaven and that these people weren't. Verse 22, many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, I would not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, done many wonders in your name, and then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me. So these people thought, I'm saved. I'm, I'm good with God. And when they got to the judgment seat of Christ, Christ gave them the bad news that you're not mine. Get out of here. You're not mine. But they thought their whole lives that they were. So please, much deception today. Much deception today. The devil has had many people counterfeiting as 
those who love Jesus Christ, and they're not. And they give false ways of salvation. Well, just well, just pray this prayer, or well, just believe in Jesus, or or just you know this, or or just be baptized. And we say that those are false ways. Those are man's ways to be saved. Those are not the Bible's ways to be saved. So now, if what I've said so far in this section describes you, and you're just now realizing it because of what I'm saying now, that you're really probably not saved. You're probably not in God's kingdom. The bad news today is that if you died right now, you'd be judged by God upon your sinfulness and not his grace. And you'll hear Jesus Christ say, Matthew 7, 23, uh, when, when you get there, I never knew you'd depart from me. And you won't hear him say, Matthew 25, 21, then his Lord said to him, well done, good and faithful servant, which goes back to what Jesus said in Matthew 7, 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall unto the king of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Notice there's something that you have to do. Now, not a work. The Bible says it's not a work, but it's something that you have to do. It's a, it's a choice you have to make, a life-changing choice that you have to make. And that's the will of the Father, to make a life-changing choice. And if there's something to do that's not a work, it's still something you have to do, that's why Jesus can say to those that truly are saved, and his Lord said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. Well, there was something that you had to be good with. There's something that you had to fulfill in order to get into the kingdom that you had to do a good job of doing. Not, oh, I have this belief in him. No, 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 no. Which means that if this is you that I'm speaking about, and you're really not, that God will not let you into heaven when you stay. You'll get to heaven at the judgment seat of Christ, but then as you stand there, he'll judge you. He'll cast you away. Now, even though what I said was terrible, There is still some good news for you today. There's really good news. If you realize that you're in trouble with God right now and and you're really not saved and born again, you are still alive. You're still breathing. You're still listening to this message. God's still working in your life, which means that God is still offering you a chance to choose him in his way of salvation right now. Will you choose to ignore it or will you choose his path? So, so how does the Bible truly say to be saved? Not my way, not, you know, so-and-so's way, not we'll have this belief in him. Well, you know, John Smith said that this is the way I get baptized. No, no, no. How does the Bible say that we get saved? How does the Bible say that someone comes to the born-again knowledge of Jesus Christ? Well, it comes from the mouth of Jesus Christ, actually. It's not, not from my mouth. It's from the mouth of Jesus Christ, Matthew 16. 24 through 25, and it has to do with the ark, the ark which is your heart. Will you open it and let him in? Will you open that ark and surrender, or will you keep your ark, your heart closed toward God and keep going on for you? Listen to what Jesus says. Then Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself. That means that you decide today to take yourself off the throne, to take yourself off of being the ruler, the master, the Lord of your own life. And that you choose today to deny that, to say, no, I will not rule myself anymore. I want Jesus to rule my life. I want you, Jesus Christ, to rule my life, not me. It, 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 It means that you 
deny yourself, you, you make that decision, you tell God, God, save me, I know that I'm not saved, I'm sorry for I, I thought I was yours all these years, God, please, you, I want Jesus, please, you, I want you to be the Lord of my life, and I decide to give my life to you. A surrender, a wave the white flag of surrender and give up to God. Opening the door of this castle that's all yours and letting a new king come in and sit on the throne. He goes on to describe a little bit more after you deny yourself, after you take yourself off the throne, after you surrender your life to Christ. And he says, then you should take up your cross and follow me. Those God will give you wisdom on once you truly surrender. He'll then show you what those mean. But those are just things that people do after they are born again, after they're saved. That's where the baptism comes in. That's where doing things for Jesus Christ. That's where evangelism comes in. But verse 25, he explains it a little bit more. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. If you want to be the ruler of your life, if you want to be the one that rules your life, then you'll lose your life. You'll lose your eternal life. But he says, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. He who surrenders his life for my sake will find it. If you turn to him this way, Paul calls this, this believing in him with your heart. And Jesus says, if you believe on him this way, this is where born again comes in. John 7, 38, he who believes in me as the scripture has said, Meaning, as I've said, as, as what I've said to do, if you do that, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. <laughs> and he's referencing Jeremiah 2.13, where God calls himself the fountain of living waters. God will come and live inside you. He'll come and live inside you and he'll change you. And he'll make you a new creature and he'll make you born again and you'll get a new life and you won't have the same character. You won't be hateful and mean and a pathological liar. You'll be a new creature in Christ. God will change you. You'll have a whole new way of looking at things. You'll be a new creation. Will you accept it or will you deny it? Christ is waiting. He says, come to me all you who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. Will you keep living your life for yourself? Or will you continue to or will you or will you change? Will you will this message change you? Will what Christ says, what his word says change you? And will you turn to him? And will you surrender today? Christ is waiting for you. Please don't make him wait long. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for your word. Thank you so much for this message, Lord. Thank you so much for God, your great grace. Thank you so much. Lord, as I said, Lord, for those that may be in a bad spot with you right now, Lord, God, if they realize it, Lord, then they're still breathing. You're working in their hearts. They're listening to this message. They have an opportunity today to fall on their knees and cry out to Jesus Christ and lay their hearts out on the floor and let you have their heart. Let you have them. Let you come into them. You have. They, have, they can do that right now. Jesus. They can do that right now. Even while I'm speaking, Lord, they can fall down right now and cry out to you and say, God, save me. I realize I'm sorry. I'm wrong. Jesus, save me. I want you to be my my king and my Lord. I don't want to be my ruler anymore. They can do it right now. But God, will they? Please stir in their hearts. 
Stir in their hearts. Bring them to you, Lord. Help them to make that decision. It's the hardest, yes, sweetest, most, most sweetest decision they'll ever make in their lives. It's so hard to give up being me. It's so hard to give up being me. Or to let, when, when, the, when the message of salvation goes from the head to the heart, Lord, it's the hardest thing to let go. But Lord God, we can't keep it. We, we can let go and we can have everything forever. Or we can hold on, Lord, and we can die in our sins and have nothing later. God, please help them come to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ today. Not just some head knowledge like they have of the sun and the moon and the stars. Lord, please. Please, 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 please bring salvation to those listening to this message. I love you and praise you and I thank you, Lord God. And I ask all these things in Jesus Christ's mighty name. Amen.